This is Future Health, a podcast on trends in the patient journey, what to expect in the next three to five years. The podcast is produced by the Advertising Research Foundation's Pharma Council, whose mission is to identify marketing and research challenges in the pharma industry and develop strategies to deal with them. I'm Jay Matlin, the director of the ARF Council Program. Inclusivity is shaping up to be a mega trend in healthcare. In the last episode of Future Health, we discussed why it's taking center stage in our industry. This time around, we're focused specifically on inclusion in pharma market research and marketing. The ARF Pharma Council recently hosted an event on this subject featuring four research and advertising experts. This is an edited version of that event. Each gave a brief description of their work in this area and then engaged in a discussion moderated by Pharma Council co-chair Marjorie Reedy. Marjorie is director of vaccine market research at Merck. Thank you, Jay. I think most will agree about the importance of diversity and inclusion in the healthcare industry. Patient populations are diverse, so care needs to reflect the differences in backgrounds and individual experiences. As marketers, we need to acknowledge these differences across a wide range of dimensions, including, but not limited to, ethnicity, gender, age, abilities, sexual orientation, religion, and education. All of these can impact experiences along the patient journey. Considerable attention has been given to better representation of diverse groups in clinical trials. And while we are far from ideal, efforts are being advanced in this area. Not as much attention has been placed on diversity in market research, particularly in the healthcare space. Today's panel is going to tackle this important topic. And while we acknowledge we aren't going to solve for all the inequities today, we are hoping that by bringing these challenges to the forefront, we can begin the job and the journey of designing more inclusive research that will help provide insights that will ultimately drive better patient outcomes. Kristen Tolbert will start today's discussion. Kristen is from CLIC, and she's a VP of Cross-Cultural Marketing. Kristen, the stage is yours. Thank you, Marjorie. The U.S. population is increasingly diverse. As of 2020, 42% is non-white, and this number gets uh, higher as the generations get younger. 100% of the population growth since the previous census is attributed to two main groups, Hispanics and Asian Americans. And in a global sense, people of color are already the majority. Diverse patient populations are disproportionately impacted by certain major chronic conditions, often due to negative social determinants of health. And it's important to note that this isn't just about race and ethnicity. There are inequities and disparities well-documented for non-racial groups like the queer community, those from lower household incomes, um, as well as the differently abled. Did you know that 26% of U.S. adults have some form of disability, whether it's visible or not? Most people I talk to are surprised by that number, and it's understandable why they're surprised. People who are differently abled are incredibly underrepresented in media and in research. And this is particularly important for us as researchers, however. If we're thinking about inclusive design approaches, one thing that we need to start asking ourselves, honestly, is are there physical, visual, or auditory barriers 
that our recruitment and methodology can account for ahead of time? Are we thinking about this at all? So a good question to ask ourselves, right? Because the current standards of research design and our current standards and approaches do have room for optimization. If we look at clinical trials, for example, there's efforts being done uh, to increase inclusivity, but current around average is about only 15% of participants in clinical trials are people of color. Now, it's not just about sampling, right? It's also about language, the language that we're using in our screeners and discussion guides, the talent that we're using in the room. Moderator concordance is something we recommend to help participants relax, feel safe opening up. And while women are well-represented as well as LGBTQ plus people, research teams are still majority white. There are organizations that are focused on creating more diversity in the industry. And it's important that those organizations exist and create community, but it's also good for us to think about this as well in our day-to-day lives and our teams. Are there ways in which we can be creating more intersectional research teams and thinking about intersectionality in multiple ways? Thank you so much, Kristen. Next, I'd like to introduce Deneen Rodney from Zebra Strategies. Deneen? Thank you, Marjorie. Our core mission at Zebra is to influence the change that impacts the people who need it the most. And to do that, we work with our clients to what we call mind the gap. And so like, what do we mean by gaps? Well, the gaps are the barriers preventing the research from truly being inclusive. And these gaps include safety, primarily emotional safety, but I would say recently it's actual physical safety at times, depending upon the audience. If we think about the transgender population, folks that are victims of abuse, there's also distrust. And we know this is particularly relevant in the pharma and healthcare space, right? And then the last thing is shame. And shame is another barrier. It's not easily understood shame, and it's not easily recognizable, whereas safety and distrust might be more recognizable. To date, marketing research has been primarily transactional in nature, right? And for a long time, it worked. We paid participants and they responded to our questions. However, looking at these gaps and challenges we faced since 2020, right? The post-pandemic exhaustion, racial reckoning, increase in hate speech, increase in hate crimes, and marginalization holistically, underserved audiences are less willing to participate in research. And even if they do take part, they may not feel safe enough to truly open up. So it's imperative to deriving high quality insights that we have a um, relational model as a way forward, right? To enhance opportunities for inclusive research design. Briefly, the relational model is collaborative, community involved, focused on partnerships versus participants, and it builds connections and trust over time. So to execute on this relational model, not only do research organizations need to be community-driven, the methods employed need to be human-centric. So when we think about the key to engaging hard, this hard-to-reach population and addressing these barriers, right, and this idea of the human-centric approach, we know that this human-centric approach will not compromise the quality of the analysis. In fact, it might actually improve the quality of the analysis, right? Let's just take, for example, tech interface. Tech interfaces for many online platforms require us, us meaning Zebra, to evaluate the ease of use and access. And so what that means is that we might like a platform that has all the bells and whistles, but if we think it's not going to be user-friendly, we may think about making a different decision. 
And when you think about tech, you know, I had a recruiter tell us, uh, one of my recruiters say, you know, a laptop costs $600 and my folks can't afford that. And that precludes them from participating in research. And some platforms aren't mobile friendly. Simple changes make all the difference, and they add up to deep, nuanced, layered understandings and insights for our clients, simply because our participants feel comfortable, they feel empowered, and they feel treated with respect. So, you know, I think as we look to create more inclusive research, we can start by answering that key question for our participants. So I want to leave you with that question. Put yourself in the participant's shoe and say, what is in it for me? And see what answer you can come up with that doesn't include the monetary incentive. That is a great place to start. Okay, thank you so much, Deneen. All right, um, we're going to turn this now over to Allison Wench, who is a client partner at the Health and Tech Vertical at Cantar. Allison, if you could please share with us your thoughts on how to have inclusion in quantitative research. Thank you, Marjorie. So as we think about inclusivity, it's about giving everyone the opportunity to participate in a way that allows them to be accurate and to be comfortable. In quantitative research, we don't have that advantage of, of establishing that human and personal connection and that comfort that you get from, from being face-to-face -face with people and from being with people. But we still have to develop that trust in order to really make sure that we're doing credible work. So because of that, the little things really make a big difference. Um, so the way that we ask demographic questions that start the survey, that's the, everyone's first experience with, with the research that we're doing, it's also the first place that we can really fall down. And that's where we want to make sure that we give people the opportunity to accurately reflect who they are and make them feel included. Some of the ones that come to mind immediately are gender and ethnicity. So for gender, acknowledging that sex and gender are not the same and allowing for multiple responses and not just saying other. Um, that's not, it's not inclusive. It doesn't make people feel like they're, they're being represented. So allowing them to say that they self-identify or they're gender fluid and giving people an out. As we talk about research, a lot of times we're talking about doing global research and in all of these markets, it's not always safe for people to feel like they can identify in the way that they want. Ethnicity and race. Um, for a really long time, we asked them kind of separate questions and allowed single responses, but that's not true of the world that we live in anymore. And having those kind of detailed and inclusive options really make sure that we're not isolating or alienating anyone that we're speaking to. And I think very frequently, it's very easy to say, let's ask every question. Let's find out everything about people. But we have to kind of take a step back and ask if we need to ask some of those sensitive questions. Is there a real purpose for us asking questions like sexuality or about conditions? So in order to truly represent the populations that, that we want to and within specific therapeutic areas, we may have to oversample to represent those underrepresented. And it may require um, that kind of additional investment and, and perspective, but that really gets us to that place where we actually are accurately representing people. And then ultimately, we need to show respect and demonstrate empathy in the way we speak. So talking like humans uh, and not just like researchers when we, we write our surveys. But I think empathy and respect also extends to thinking about people's times it's not unusual in pharma to see a really, really long survey. Um, when we have people, we want to ask them everything. But I think we need to ask ourselves if a 40-minute survey is respectful of people's times and whether it's really allowing us to be representative or get that accurate understanding of how people really feel in the market. And then lastly, I think 
as quantitative researchers, we love templates, right? Like we love being able to leverage something on repeat, but not actually looking at those from time to time actually just helps perpetuate that implicit bias that's built into the traditional ways that we do things. And it's really difficult to completely eradicate implicit bias, but I think we can interrupt it. Thank you so much, Allison. Okay, our final speaker today is Jillian Rice. She is a vice president of IPSOS Creative Excellence, specializing in creative development and evaluation. Jillian, it's all yours. Thanks so much for the introduction, Marjorie, and to the ARF for having me today. I'm going to first talk about the representation of women in advertising. So in 2016, See Her developed GEM, the gender equity measure, which quantifies gender bias in advertising and programming and is included as a standard in all Ipsos ad research whenever women are present. GEM measures perceptions of how women or girls are depicted with four key questions. What is the overall opinion of the woman represented? Is she portrayed respectfully? Is she depicted inappropriately? And is she seen as a positive role model to other women and girls? Ads that perform in the top third of the database on the GEM metric are significantly more likely to drive both short-term sales and build stronger long-term brand relationships. Positive portrayals have a clear payback for brands. There are more industries that outperform the average when it comes to representation of people of color in advertising, with pharma still among some of the top categories. When we bring both the GEM and REM data together and look at the top and bottom performers on both of those metrics, we see that the greater role the person of color or the woman has in the ad, the more positive the response to that representation. Even simply including a person of color or a woman in a primary role meaningfully increases performance, which we know drives impact to the business and is better for society. From our perspective, inclusion in today's world has in many ways become table stakes. There's a lot of upside for marketers to consider how people of color, women, and other diverse communities want to be portrayed and how they can be represented in an authentic and non-stereotypical way. Thank you so much, Jillian. So we're going to start with the Q&A with the panel. How can we start to measure success and track our progress toward more equitable marketing practices? Kristen. Yeah, I think the first thing that we can do as teams is establish benchmarks. I often recommend that we do an audit of teams existing primary research. Let's look at the research we've done to date. How equitable are our sample sizes? What insights can we pull out against those audiences, right? Providing they're stable from a quantitative perspective, right? What insights can we draw? And establish some benchmarks, identify the info gaps, really kind of start in-house and then design research that can then fill those info gaps. I think there's also an analytics exercise on the back end, right? After work is produced, how are we looking at how work is performing in market? And just start to make these data cuts and these audiences, depending on your therapeutic area, and of course, they need to be prioritized based on business objectives, but start by establishing some benchmarks, understanding where your info gaps are, and then building your analytics along the way in continuation with these enhanced research practices to measure your success over time, because it will take time. But I think if we establish those benchmarks first, then we can build from there. Great. Okay, Deneen, turning on to you, can you maybe speak to what are some of the future concerns for underrepresented populations in market research? You know, I think safety is a big issue. Um, And I think that, again, it's moved from emotional safety 
to actual physical safety. Uh, and I think also how that appears, how that shows up is going to be interesting. Um, I've been hearing from some communities their lack of comfort in social media. So how does that impact social listing when you've got certain populations that don't feel comfortable with their location settings being on, with sharing about the things that they're doing? So I think safety is going to be a big concern for some populations, and that's something that we'll have to, from, as researchers, plan for and protect. Yes. And as kind of a follow-up to that, you talked about the th things that we need to be mindful of as we're working with these different populations, trust, mm -hmm. safety, et cetera. Mm -hmm. How do we assure them when we bring them into the research that we will safeguard all those dimensions? Because I'm sure there's quite a bit of apprehension when they're called and asked to participate. I agree with you. I mean, I think that's something that I guess each organization has to decide what they're comfortable with. I think for us, we're it's really around as much anonymity as we can offer and then assuring them that their information is not going to be shared or used. That's, I guess, would be a start. Allison, you gave us some really great examples of situations in quantitative research um, that can be biased. Can you share with us any more watchouts that we should be mindful of going forward? Yeah, I think... Again, some of those just everyday questions, those classification questions. Um, again, there's been a ton of, of work done and, and research on this to look at some of these questions, but there's little things like, how old are you, right? Like that's, <laughs> that's not a great way of, of asking the question. We can very simply ask, well, what, what year were you born? I think, again, there's questions like, what's your working status? assuming that everyone's lifestyle is based around working. Right. I think until you look at them and kind of be have that mindful perspective and reflect on them, it can be very, very easy to overlook those simple things. And again, I question whether we need to ask them, right? Like, are, are those questions relevant to, to some of the work that we're doing that we just throw in because we say, hey, why not? Um, why do we need to ask people all of this information about themselves? And are we really going to use it? Julia, and this is a rather broad question, so feel free to narrow it as you like. <laughs> but how well do pharma ads represent the communities within their respective markets, not just in terms of casting, but in terms of resonating? That's a great question. I think when we think about kind of representation, there are layers and levels to that, right? They're simply showing but then there's actually building a narrative around whoever it is we're representing or, or the story that we're trying to tell and making sure that not only are we telling that story accurately, but the audience that it reflects, it resonates with them, right? It, it doesn't always have to be like we're looking in a mirror, but there needs to be human truths that that audience can relate to. And truly the best way to ensure that as advertisers, we are bringing those stories forward is to talk with those people and, and make sure that they are happy with the way that they're being represented and that it does indeed resonate in the, in the ways that it's intended. Okay, I'm going to turn it back to Kristen. What advice might you give to some different interagency teams looking to optimize their research approach? Yeah, well, I think that there's ways in which IITs can really find efficiencies together, right? Sharing out um, screeners and discussion guides early on in the process and allowing those SMEs to help inform that language. And to Allison's point, prioritize some of the questions that we're asking, right? Deneen brought up such a good point around the amount of time that we're taking from people's days. And so as we're sort of 
asking all of these questions? Are there ways in which we can streamline our approach and really uh, make sure we're asking what's most important? There are also things that I think we need to think about in terms of the best practices that that my amazing co-panelists presented today, right? Some sort of nuts and bolts things around optimizing language that we use, thinking about moderator concordance, et cetera. I think the biggest thing that I would encourage us all to do is to be relentless, a little less tactical, but equally important. I get pushback more so than I'd like to admit when it comes to some of this stuff. And so even in a disease state like diabetes, right? Where we have segmentation research, that's 85% non-Hispanic white for type two diabetes, right? There's a disparity there. There's no reason why in a disease state with that high of a prevalence, we can't get more participation from people of color. So work with teams that can specialize and have the strategies that know how to recruit these audiences, know how to navigate the cultural nuances and barriers that certain audiences may have to participation. And then just be relentless in your pursuit internally. Don't take no for an answer, keeping an advocate and pushing for this to be important in terms of how we do the work. Uh, because I think there's an opportunity for us right now to create a wildfire in the industry that really centers health equity and how we go to market. I think patients and HCPs alike need us to show up in that way. This question I'm going to send out to the panel, but it does build off of one of the topics Deneen touched upon, which is shame. There are a lot of therapeutic conditions that are stigmatized. And how do we get our patient population who may feel embarrassed, who may not want to really disclose publicly that they have a particular condition? How do we get them to participate and really get under the hood and share with us what's really going on in their world? Deneen. I'm not the right person to answer this question because I'm a slow and steady type person, right? So my answer is going to be really around taking the time to, to develop a little bit of trust and then from there start to have those types of conversations. Um, I think for certain communities, it's very sensitive and you kind of have to meet people. People always say meet people where they are, but what does that really mean, right? So I think it's really around developing community relationships with what we call um, credible messengers who might be able to bridge the gap of comfort with these types of issues, whether that be a group that's an advocate for HIV or a group that is working with folks that are, you know, Black women that are experiencing breast cancer, that might be a way to start having a, a conversation that might make folks a little more comfortable. Shame is a weird kind of thing to navigate. You kind of have to look at what the shame's coming from. Is it coming from my economic situation? Is it coming from my educational situation? Is it coming from my disease state? And then you've got to really figure out a way, how can I make this person feel whole and complete? And how can I raise their esteem? And once you, if you can do that, then you, you know, then you're at a place where they're going to, they may be a little more open to having, you know, conversations about the situation. I'm going to go back to Allison. Are there any resources available for us to start consulting to create better research, whether it's from a quantitative or a qualitative standpoint? It's something that I know we have to slowly adopt and incorporate, but it would be really beneficial for us who have teams of new market researchers to be able to help direct them to start thinking more inclusively. Yeah. I think, again, as, as I started digging into to different pieces of work, because I think, again, I'm on the learning journey as well. I, there are so many resources. Ask your partners that you're working with and ask them to help you find 
identify that and, and help interrupt it again, kind of at some of those different stages. Because again, as Kantar, I know we have a ton of research on research and perspective, and I'm sure a lot of um, other partners have, have a lot to share and offer. Organizations like the ARF and, and other Insights Association have been sharing a ton of great content, and it's out there, and it's going to it and, and spending the time to really dig in and, and internalize it and then reflecting back on what you're actually doing. So it's nice to go and listen or read the article, but then take that and look back at what you are doing. Um, but I think definitely, I think there is, there's so much information out there that I think we, we just need to ask the question and ask for help. And there are people who are really ready and willing to give it. And Jillian, I have a slight curveball question for you. Have you seen any examples where being inclusive has actually backfired on the success of the advertising? And if so, do you have an example or is it usually pretty safe? That's a good question. I think I have certainly seen examples of where where it has backfired. I'm, I'm not going to name names, but I've certainly seen examples where it's backfired. But I think it goes to something that Allison just said that I, I think resonates with probably everyone listening today is every brand, every person, every marketer is going to be at a different phase in this learning journey. And so it's caring. It's asking that first question. It's being the first person to raise the hand and doing that work to want to get better, to want to improve. That's really, I think, all any of us can ask for at this stage. So in those situations, right, you know, that's where something like just a gut check, a, a test of an ad or running it by, you know, a, a few other people can really prevent something that turns a little bit into a disaster from becoming something bigger. And, it, and it's a great opportunity to educate as well. I've certainly had instances where ads have come across my desk that before we've even put them into testing, I've had conversations with clients of, you know, this is coming off in this way. And that, I'm sure that wasn't your intention, but um, I want to make you aware of it and, and, you know, have a discussion before we maybe put it in front of consumers. And maybe we still put it in front of consumers, right? But just being that advocate and, and recognizing that it's not coming from a place of judgment, it's coming from a place of everyone's starting somewhere different, and we can all help each other. Great. Well, with that, um, I would love to thank my panel. You gave us a lot to think about, some really interesting and some inspiring information as well. So thank you, Jay. I'll turn this back to you. Marjorie Reedy is Director of Vaccines and Market Research at Merck and co-chair of the ARF Pharma Council. Jillian Rice is Vice President at Ipsos Creative Excellence. Deneen Rodney is CEO and founder of Zebra Strategies. Kristen Tolbert is Vice President, Cultural Marketing at Click, an advertising agency. And Allison Wench is Vice President, Client Management at Cantar Millward Brown. A full version of this event is available to ARF members on our website. I'm Jay Matlin. Thank you for joining us. This has been Future Health, a podcast on trends in the patient journey, what to expect in the next three to five years. If you would like to learn more about the ARF Council Program, please visit our website, thearf.org backslash communities backslash and click on councils. You can also follow the Advertising Research Foundation on Facebook or on Twitter at the underscore ARF. Our producer is Monique Nazareth and our audio engineer is Danielle Bruno. Please join us again for future health podcasts from the ARF Pharma Council in the coming months. I'm Jay Matlin.